0: Today I have the privilege of, uh, we're continuing our our series, for those of you who weren't here last week, it's called Generosity, actually he goes over here, Alex, but thank you. Um, So, Arthur stands behind his podium, we stand, it doesn't matter. Okay, so, if you're new here, you don't know that last week we started a series called Generosity, and I talked about time, and today we have a special guest who's going to talk about talent, and then next week is treasure and then touch. Four things that we do to express our love for God and to show our commitment to him. Today we have a special guest who's been with us for the men's retreat. And uh, he is, I've been introducing him not as a spiritual father because he's actually only like five years older than me. But a spiritual older brother. And I have two of them. I, I, I was not blessed to have a dad who was committed to Jesus when I was growing up. But I have been extremely blessed to have two men of God Andy Wygant when I was a teenager and then Arthur when I was in my 20s who guided me along I, I was at Princeton Seminary first year student and, and Princeton Seminary was not academically a big challenge for me well it was a little bit of a challenge for me but it was a spiritual challenge a great spiritual challenge for me and in October of 1981 Yes, 1981. I had the opportunity to start serving as a student assistant pastor at Garwood Presbyterian Church where Arthur Pace was the pastor. Um, that year was pivotal in my life. I, I honestly mean, I, I don't know if I would have stayed at Princeton for three years if I didn't have Arthur the first year. Every weekend it was like an oasis of people that love Jesus as I went to the church and met with Arthur and his wife Mary, they welcomed me into their home many times for meals. And as I served the, the, the junior high and senior high kids at the church and did various tasks uh, that would help me to become a pastor. So anyway, Arthur and I were friends. And then Arthur left Garwood just in the next year, I think, and became a military chaplain. And so he served as a military chaplain for 30 years, rose to the level of full colonel before he retired a handful of years ago, and we lost touch with each other for many of the years that we are talking about, and I didn't even know that after um, he went into the military, he was no longer Arthur Pace. He was Art Pace. Uh, and I can, still can't say that. I still can't say Art. I say Arthur. And Arthur tells me the, really the only people that call him Arthur is Mary, his wife, and me, and maybe a couple of close friends. Everybody else, it's Art. Um, and also, uh, I'll, I'll leave... It. No, I'm going to say this. Um, Mary says Arthur in a way that nobody else does at times. So uh, both good and bad, I guess. So anyway, Art has been retired for a while. And when we had our first men's retreat in a long time last year, we had him come out to, to speak. And then he spoke here on the weekend. And then this year, uh, we invited him back again. He did a great job once again at the men's retreat. And in the last 53 weeks... Every weekend, one of the staff members of New Life has spoken from this stage during these worship services, except for two. A, a year ago when he was here, and now. That's how much I value his ability to bring the word of God to people, his faithfulness to God. And you're going uh, to hear a three-point sermon. And, and the reason I say that is because Arthur thinks every passage of Scripture breaks down into three points. And that, this has been a point of contention for us for uh uh, 41 years uh because i don't necessarily agree with that but he's going to tell you something in a moment that will make you see why he preaches three-point sermons okay so arthur would you come on up and let's give him a new life welcome
1: it really is a a great honor to be back with you and uh and to see some familiar faces you know at my age, it's great to see anything that's familiar from a year ago. You know what I mean? So, And I'm really excited about, the, um, about those going to Honduras. I got to spend quite a bit of time in Honduras. Uncle Sam was sending me there in uniform. Uh, so it was a little different experience than you're going to have. Uh, but I love the country and got to travel all around it and, and meet the people. Uh, you know, uh, i am just got to... My only advice to you is do not drink the water. Uh, you, you, will, you will regret that. Uh, so... Um, so, but other than that, they're hungry for the Lord. The world is hungry for the Lord, and you will find the—you'll find the Honduran people are just wonderful, you know, and unspoiled because they're tiny. So when I walked around, I was a giant. So I really kind of like that. You know, they all stared at me. You know, so, uh, but anyway, so thing, it, was, it was great. Um, but also, uh, and what a privilege to be able to have time with some of the men of the congregation to be able to spend. Uh, Friday and Saturday with them. I thank each of the families that allowed the the man of your family to come and be part of that. Uh, you could have had other family plans, but you knew that that was important. And I, we tried to share with them as many important things, including, uh, you know, all kinds of lessons, including make sure you turn your microphone off when you go in the men's room. Uh, so, um, so sometimes you learn by negative examples that the teacher uh, sets for you. So. Uh, But we really did try to encourage, because we live in that time, we we really need to be strong in the Lord. And I appreciate this chance to be able to come and just share a little bit with you from the Word of God. I was telling Chris, um, you know, earlier that I just was a little disappointed on the Sunday you gave me because I really would have liked to be able to get up here in my pajamas eating Pop-Tarts and talking to you. So uh, that's like super cool. <laughs> so, but other than that, I guess it's good. So uh, let's go ahead and, and let's just jump into the Word of God. Um, I'm going to be reading to you from uh, the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 5 through 26. And as I was telling the other services, I said, uh, you know, that you, this is a really cool church. I mean, this is so, I'm not used to this at all. I, I get to preach around periodically, this is really cool. And they got the scriptures written back there, and I can sort of kind of read them. But I got the glasses here, so I'm holding this up here. There's like a big old book here, but actually it's like size 20 print, you know, so. Um, you didn't need to know that. Why am I telling you that? Anyway, okay, So anyway. Um, but in all seriousness now, listen to the word of God. These are words of life and death. Listen. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. It becomes fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. May God bless our understanding the reading of His holy word. Let's pray. Now, our oh Lord, help us to put aside all the plans of the day. Open our minds and hearts like a fertile field to receive the seed of Your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to You, Lord, my Rock in my Redeemer. Amen. William Pitt, the younger, was the youngest prime minister ever elected in Great Britain. Ever. He was so successful and he was was so good at what he did that later in his life he was re-elected as prime minister, the only person in their history ever to do so. In between those two historic periods of his life, he was having a social gathering and he had invited some folks to come and join him, and one of the guests came up to him and apologized to him. Well, I don't understand, Pitt said, we we just met. Well, that's just it, sir, the man said. I want to apologize for what I thought of you before we met each other. That person's preconceived notions about William Pitt Pitt, could have kept them from knowing this great historic figure. Preconceived notions. Similarly, preconceived notions or old habits can have a serious effect on us today in our walk with Jesus Christ. They can keep us from knowing him as intimately as we should. Our text for today addresses this very issue. It is, in my opinion, one of the most extraordinary stories in all of scripture. Now, one of the key things to remember is that the Jews and the Samaritans were sworn enemies of each other. They were having a feud, as they'd say in the South, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Only the Hatfields and the McCoys didn't know why they were fighting The Jews and the Samaritans do. We know that because the word of God tells us that. In the book of 2 Kings, uh, it tells us that during Israel's captivity in 722 BC, the king of Assyria took a number of the Jews and transplanted them into the area that we now call Samaria. Well, these Jews decided to kind of make themselves at home. They made themselves comfortable there. Um, They took non-Jews as their wives and husbands. They began to integrate pagan customs and rituals into their worship. They decided to only accept the first five books of the Bible and none of the other teachings. And they even built a temple on a mountain there in Samaria and then started their own priestly aristocracy to take care of that temple and to minister to the spiritual needs of the people. Now this caused tremendous uh, hatred Uh, between the two peoples but the final straw came in 128 bc when a priest king of israel attacked samaria and destroyed their temple that cemented that hatred in time and neither side was budging in their opinions of each other now in our story to put it in context jesus is traveling to galilee you can check this on a map a little later on don't do it now i want you to be listening But he's traveling north, and and he's going going to go to Galilee. Now to do that, there's a, a section of Samaria that you need to pass through if you're going to get to Galilee in the fastest time. So that was legal. Jews were allowed to do that, but there were rules. You could go through Samaria, but you had to go through it as quickly as possible. And when passing through, you could not talk to any Samaritans, and you couldn't touch anything a Samaritan touched. The only thing I can figure out is you'd get Samaritan cooties if you did. Now, if you violated that law, you were considered to be ritualistically unclean and then had to go through the rituals later on to get clean again. Well, one day, along comes Jesus. He tends to come along unexpectedly sometimes in our lives, even though he lives in us. He comes along and he goes, and it's the sixth hour. Now, the New Living Translation that we read from calls it noon, that's correct. But if you read, if you're translating the sixth hour, that's the same thing. Sixth hour means noon. It is noontime. Jesus is hot, and he's tired, and he's thirsty from his journey. He chose to stop and sit at this well, Jacob's well, in Samaria. Now, this well was a sacred place to the Samaritans. It was not only a source of fresh and cool, refreshing water, but it was also on land that was owned by Jacob himself. And therefore, that well would have been a kind of social center. People would have come there not just to get water, but to meet other people, to enjoy, and and to kind of connect with their history. At that moment when Jesus is there, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Now normally, normally women would be the ones drawing water, but normally they would do it at the end of the day when it was cooler. So you take the the spent water of the day, you refresh it, and you be ready for the next next day. That's how it normally went. We don't know why she was coming at noon. People have speculated about that, and those of you who know me know I don't like that. I don't like when the Word of God is silent, us filling in those blanks. It's fun to talk about, but we don't know why for sure she was there. But one thing we can be certain of, she knew that when she came at noontime, there would be almost no one there at the well. That part would be true. So she comes there and she expected to draw water for herself. But what she encountered was the Son of God himself, right there. Now she will try to argue with him tooth and nail because of things in her life that she won't let go of. And I believe that we can all be like that Samaritan woman when we encounter Jesus at inconvenient times of our lives. Like her, we can miss the blessing of a more abundant Christian life because we refuse to do three things. (laughs) And they are today's take-home point. Number one, we we refuse to glow up, we refuse to go up, and we refuse to grow up. First, we often refuse to glow up. Sometimes our light cannot shine because the darkness in our souls constrains it. Jesus asks this woman for a simple thing. Please give me some water. In verse 9, the woman spits out her racial and religious prejudice. She basically says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, to do something for you? The woman had a darkness in her soul, a cancer that was affecting her spirit. She had not learned to forgive. A man was telling his buddy about an argument that he'd had with his wife, and he said to his buddy, I just can't stand it. Every time we have an argument, my wife gets historical. His says, wait, historical? You mean hysterical, right? He goes, no, I mean historical. Every time we argue, she, she drags up everything from the past and holds it against me. <laughs> None of you get... Historical, right? You had that marriage mentoring, right? I'm just saying. Okay, anyway. But that's what the Samaritan woman is doing, right? It's exactly what she's doing. And we Christians find this easy to do as well. When we refuse to forgive, we pay a spiritual price. When we wear the armor of unforgiveness, it makes it virtually impossible for the love of God to penetrate us or for the love of God to get out for other people. Forgiveness requires effort, sacrifice, and practice. If we want to glow up, if we want our Christian life and witness to be able to shine brighter, then we have to let go of our past hurts and our past anger, and by the Holy Spirit's power, move on, so that our arms are finally free to embrace our risen Savior. Like, other, like so many other veterans, I enjoy reading uh, historical books, historical novels, histories, biographies about folks, and a uh, wonderful book, and it's book called Lee, um, generally, the, the, anyway, called Lee, The Last Years, Charles Braceland Flood reports that after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee visited a Kentucky lady who took him to the remains of a grand old tree in front of her house. There she cried bitterly that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by federal artillery fire. She looked to Lee for a word, condemning the North, or at least sympathizing with her loss. After looking at a brief silence and looking at the tree, Lee said, cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. Do you catch what that woman was doing? She allowed that tree to become a monument of hate, a monument of unforgiveness, that every time she passed it, she was reminded of what had been afflicted to her dear tree and reminded her again to remain angry and unforgiving. Her life will never move on, and Lee knew it. Cut it down and start anew. Cut it down. Forgive and go on living. It's better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain and let bitterness take root and poison the rest of our life. The Samaritan woman was filled with prejudice and anger, and it nearly cost her a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can learn from her, but if, because if we refuse to forgive, we cannot glow up. Then second, sometimes we refuse to go up. We sometimes refuse the call of Jesus in our lives. We refuse to do what he asks of us because we feel inadequate for the task or we think that what he's asking us to do is too ridiculous. In our text, Jesus ignored the woman's prejudice and he says to her, if you understood who I really am, you would be the one asking me for a drink and I'd give you water of eternal life. At that moment, you catch this, at that moment, Jesus reached across that chasm. He reached right across that huge, vast gulf of racial, religious, and gender bias to offer this woman the full power of God in her life. This was the moment. Now this woman should have leaped at the chance to ask Jesus for a drink. Instead, she argues the call. She doesn't want to go up. She says, you think you're so special? You think you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Why should I ask you for a drink when you aren't even smart enough to bring anything with you to get water? She refused to go up. She refused to obey because the call made absolutely no sense to her. Imagine... She was standing before the only source of eternal salvation in all of the universe and she refused to go up. She refused to comply because it made no sense to her but God never asks anything of us that isn't for our own good. He calls us. His call to us doesn't always have to make sense to us. His call does not necessarily require our intellectual assent or our common-sense approval. His call to go up, to do as he asks, requires only one thing, and that is instant obedience. The well-known Bible teacher of the last century, Donald Gray Bauernhaus, uh, once wrote this story. And he said, A young son of a missionary couple in Zaire was playing in the yard. Young son was playing in the yard. Suddenly the voice of the boy's father rang out from the porch. Philip, obey me instantly. Drop to your stomach. And immediately the youngster did as his father commanded. Now crawl toward me as fast as you can. The boy obeyed. Now stand up and run to me, the father yelled. Philip responded unquestionably and ran into his father's arms. His father held him tightly and began to praise God. And as the youngster turned to look at the tree by which he had been playing, he saw a large, deadly snake hanging from the branches. Now, at the first command of his father, he could have responded like many children do. He could have said, why do you want me to do that? He could have responded and said, I'm not going to make a fool of myself in front of my friends crawling on my belly in the dirt. but he trusted his father. He obeyed immediately and his instant obedience saved his life. When we get our our calls from God may not be that dramatic, but they might be. But they're nonetheless important or God wouldn't ask. And once we obey, once we go up, we've got to keep going up until our Lord tells us otherwise. No matter who or what we encounter along the way. I love this story. It's from um, written by an economist. You, many of you may not know him. His name was John Kenneth Galbraith. He was pretty well known in the 60s. And he wrote a book called A Life in Our Times. And, and in the book, this, this economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, he, he's kind of world-renowned, uh, he's writing about his, I, can't, I can never do this without giggling, about his housekeeper, whose name was Emily Gloria Wilson. So in his book, he's telling a story about her. She was a housekeeper. Now listen to this story. Now I'm quoting, this is now this famous economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, writing this story. This is verbatim. It had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith, this is Lyndon Johnson. He's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well wake him up, I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. Then she respectfully hung up. When I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. Tell that woman I want her at the White House. (laughs) Who do we work for? Who do we work for? if it's for Jesus, then unlike the Samaritan woman, we will not refuse the call. We will not hesitate to go up, because regardless of circumstances, we know it is our Lord who beckons us to go, and so we go. Finally, um, some Christians refuse to grow up. We get hung up on what is comfortable for us from the past. We look at the way things have always been done and sometimes miss out on what God has for us now. Looking at the past keeps us from seeing the future of what God wants. There's a real sad story involving the aircraft carrier WASP, one of America's great naval vessels in the Second World War. It caught fire and began to sink in Guadalcanal. Now, the soldiers, uh, sailors, I'm sorry, army guy, everybody's a soldier, right? <laughs> and Navy and Air Force hate us for doing that. But anyway, um, but it caught fire, and the sailors were ordered to abandon the ship and to swim away from that vessel as fast as they could immediately. They jumped overboard, but, but rather than trusting their t- life and well tested life preservers, uh, trusting that for safety, many of them decided not to obey what they were told to do, and they clung to the sides of the ship. When the vessel plunged beneath the surface, it dragged them down with it, and they perished. It's easy for us as Christians to get sucked down in our Christian lives because Jesus is asking new things of us, but we are clinging to the old. This is what the Samaritan woman did too. In verse 15, she begrudgingly gave in to Jesus. She says, fine, give me some of this living water. That way I never have to come here again. Now, I don't know if she said it like that, but I would have. Being from New Jersey, that's how I would have said it. <laughs> and Jesus responds by addressing a very serious moral issue in this woman's life. She was amazed that Jesus, a stranger, could know all these details about her, and she concedes, therefore, that Jesus must be a prophet. But then she stops short again. She tries to deflect the discussion by diverting to the age-old debate about which mountain is best to worship. In essence, she wanted to know which mountain Jesus came from, the Samaritan mountain or the Jewish mountain. The implication being that if Jesus claimed the the Jewish mountain, then she could simply dismiss him uh, with no regret and return to the way of living that she was doing up until that point. She did not want to grow up. Now, let's not judge this woman too harshly. Many of us have found ourselves from time to time, maybe even today, being afraid to grow up. We like the familiar, we like who we've become, we like our lives the way it is, there's a few rough edges to us, we admit that. But we're overall pretty well satisfied with ourselves. and in our smugness, we miss the chance to soar with eagles. Soren Cockergaard, the Danish theologian and philosopher, once told the story about a flock of barnyard geese in Denmark. Every Saturday the geese would, sorry, every Sunday the geese would gather in the barnyard near the feeding trough, and one of their members, he was the preaching goose, and the preaching goose would get on top of one of, one of the top of the fence there awkwardly get up there and sit there, and and he would remind them of how great they were and about just about the glories of Gustum and how they should be happy that they weren't chickens or turkeys or something. Occasionally, while he was preaching, while he was talking, a, a flock of wild geese would fly overhead, winging their way south from Sweden across the Baltic Sea on their way to sunny France, flying in those marvelous V-formations that the geese do, thousands of feet in the air. And when that happened, all the geese would excitedly look up and and, and they would say to one another, that's who we really are. Uh, We're not destined to spend our lives in this stinking barnyard. Our destiny is to fly. But then the wild geese would disappear from sight. Their honking just echoing from the horizon. The barnyard geese would look around at their comfortable surroundings, sigh, and return to the mud and the filth of the barn. They never did fly. They never left the barnyard. If we want to grow up in Jesus, we've got to be willing to leave the barnyard of the familiar and take to the unknown of the skies. But the change is worth the effort. In verses 21 to 24, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, there's a change coming to the world There will no longer be a need to argue which mountain is God's. Instead, God will find each one of us and offer to us his Holy Spirit. And when that happens, wherever we are in the world, the spot on which we stand will be the holy mountain of God. And each of us, because he lives in us, will be his temple. Then things start to come together for this woman. It's dawning on her. Could this be the one? Is this the one? She takes a chance. She wants to grow up now. So she cautiously, hopefully, she tests her thinking by making a simple statement in verse 25. She says, "I believe in the Messiah." And I believe he's coming soon. And when he comes, he'll teach us what is true and righteous. To this, Jesus smiles and says, You are most clever. God has revealed to you who I am. You came for water. What you found was the Messiah who will take away the sins of the world. And with that, the woman's life was forever changed. She became not only the first person in the Bible for Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah, but she became the first missionary to the Samaritans. It's amazing what God can do when we're willing to listen to him when we're no longer content with the past and we're finally ready to grow up. Well, the Samaritan woman turned out to be a rather remarkable woman, but things could have gone quite differently for her if she refused to glow up or to go up or to grow up and if, and we today aren't any different. How much enjoyment in our Christian lives are we missing because we refuse to listen to the Lord? There was a new pastor who had this wonderful idea for his church, and he decided that over every door leading to something significant, there should be a Bible verse about what goes on in there. Pretty clever, I think. So, over the entrance to the sanctuary, they placed the Bible verse, Oh, worship the Lord. Over the large Sunday school hall, they put, Teach me thy ways, O God, that I may know thee. But the best was over the nursery. Over the nursery. They placed the words of the Apostle Paul. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) My dear friends, the time for sleeping is over. The time for change is here. Jesus is standing by the well of our lives and is asking us to go out of our way to give him a drink. What are we going to do? What? Are we going to say to Jesus, if we want to experience the living water he offers, if we want to use our talents for his glory, we will do that through living today's next step. I will glow up, go up, and grow up with Jesus this week. Amen? Amen.
0: So the woman met Jesus. And she was forever changed. And in our lives, we have that same opportunity today. If you have never met Jesus, and here at New Life, we say meeting Jesus is simple. It's actually easy. But living the life in Jesus is not so easy. But it's simple as ABC. The first thing we do is we admit that we haven't glowed up, growed up or goed up. I know it's not good grammar, but we haven't done those three things. We haven't done the things that we need to do. We admit that. And then we believe what the woman at the well believed, that Jesus is the Messiah. That means God's anointed one, the one who came from heaven to earth to be savior, which means rescuer from sin and death, and Lord, which means master, owner, literally God in your life. And then see, we confess him, as Savior and Lord, which means to say the same thing as God says, this is my son. And then we call on the Holy Spirit to fill us up. So right now is the best time in eternity for all of us to trust Jesus for the very first time if we've not done that. If you're ready to do that today, we're, we're gonna pray, I'm gonna pray, and I, I say this a lot, I don't have to pretend to pray that I need to admit that I'm a sinner because I am one, even as a redeemed person. And I do believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And I certainly want to confess him and and ask for the Holy Spirit's power. So I'm going to pray as if I'm you and you can pray along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for who you are, the creator of all things. Thank you for sending Jesus to the world, your Messiah, your anointed one, to give us new life. God, first off, I admit that I am a sinner, that I haven't done the things that I ought to have done. I haven't been shining the way I ought to shine. I haven't really grown the way you called me to grow God I believe Jesus is the Messiah the anointed one your son savior for me personally and Lord of my life and God I confess that right now to you and to all who will listen and I I ask for your Holy Spirit to come into me because I need your power and your presence in order to be able to live the new life that you are giving me right now. And God, for all of us who have prayed a prayer like that last week, last month, last year, a decade ago, 50 years ago, I pray right now for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit so that we can glorify you, so that we can bring you honor, so that we can live our lives glowing up, going up and growing up every single moment. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.